0: Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. Now, this is a podcast for anyone who really wants to go deeper in the scriptures and just isn't sure how to go about it. Uh, We're here to try to help you think, to to live, and to love biblically, uh, while definitely never losing sight of the real purpose of scripture, and that is to show us the glories of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, I'm Matthew Tilley. And uh, you are listening to episode two of the podcast. Welcome. So now we're officially into the second full week of 2021. And I hope everything's going pretty well for you at this point. So far, it's uh, pretty good on our end. I am continuing to pray that God will give me an opportunity to serve his local church Um, in some capacity in the new year. Um, Ultimately, I'm waiting on his timing, uh, but if you don't know, you should know that my heart is uh, to be a pastor. Um, I do believe that the Lord will open a door for me in his time. Obviously, uh, I would like that to be faster than than sometimes than he is on that, but I do want to trust his his moving. But um, shameless plug here, and I guess it's my show, so I'm allowed to do that if I want to. But uh, if you know of a church that's looking for a pastor, or maybe you're part of a church as is, is in some kind of leadership position there that would like to have me come and preach for your church, uh, just let me know. that. I, let me know. I'd love to talk with you about that. Um, the best way to contact me, you can see all the contact details on my website at mjtilly.wordpress.com slash contact. So mjtilly.wordpress.com slash contact, and you can uh, get in touch with me there. Uh, But in the meantime, I am looking forward to being at Freedom Baptist Church in Rural Hall on Sunday, the 17th. Um, I'll be there both in the morning service, both the morning services as well as the evening service. Um, And that's exciting to me. You may not know that church. It may not mean much to you, but that's exciting to me because this is the church that ordained me um, all the way back in 2009. It's the church where my wife, Vanessa, grew up. Her dad was the pastor there for for quite a long time, has since retired from that church. But uh, Pastor John White has been a a good friend to me, um, has been a big help to our family in this recent time of transition uh, that we've been going through. And it may not seem like a whole lot to you, uh, but let me just tell you, uh, for me, it's it's like going back to the mother church. Uh, It's a huge honor for me. Um, and I know that uh, that church, like a lot of churches have been affected by COVID. Uh, so I know that not everyone's back in the building yet, even though they are having services, but uh, I'm hoping to see a lot of uh, familiar faces a lot of family and friends, people that have loved us and that we've loved through the years. Um, but even if I don't get a chance to see them, I'm hoping many of them will join a live stream. Of course, I'm inviting you as well. It's Freedom Baptist Church in Roll Hall. I know that they, they uh, live stream their services, I think through their website, definitely on Facebook, but uh, encourage you to come if you can, that's the 17th. Um, of course, kids are back in school in my house. That means we've got somebody in middle school. We've got a high schooler and uh, someone going to college and the younger ones are due to be back in person later in the month. Uh, we'll see if that actually holds up as, as intended. And then lastly, just on the personal front, I'm, uh, we're gearing up for a wedding in our house. Um, our oldest son, Harrison, he is getting married to a wonderful young lady on March the 20th. It's a huge milestone for us. Uh, Particularly a huge milestone for him, uh, but it's a super big deal to us. I mean, it, it, among a lot of things, uh, it certainly means we're getting a little older. Uh, but it, you know, I, I'm pretty pretty proud of him and uh, glad that this is going to go the way the way it's going. So uh, we're looking forward to that. But. Um, Now that we're well into the new year, I'm hopeful that you started or maybe you were continuing um, some kind of Bible reading program or plan, some approach. Again, it doesn't have to be some rigid thing. Maybe it's just a way that you approach Scripture. It's fine, but just some plan for digging into the Word of God on on a regular basis. Uh, It really is uh, the way I've always talked about this for myself as well as for anybody that I would ever counsel on this topic. uh, It really is whatever gets you to consuming God's word on a regular basis, even if that's just a couple of minutes every morning or in the evening, whenever it is you have a few minutes, uh, but just to do that on a regular basis. Now. If you've got a plan going, what I wanna encourage you to do is to stick with that plan. Maybe it was a new year's resolution. That's the kind of thing you do. Great, well, I know around middle of January, those things can start to fade just a little bit. Uh, But Bible reading is way too important just to be another resolution that just kind of gets stuck on the shelf and it kind of slides off into oblivion and you forget about it. You really need to to get with a program, get with a plan, get with something that works for you and stay with it. And even if you slipped a little bit, you know, you're on day 10 or day 11 and you missed two or three days that's okay <laughs> this is not that it's not that kind of thing where you know, oh I missed today so I'm completely out of the game not at all uh, just the next next chance you get pick up the book pick it up sometime today uh, maybe even as part of this podcast we'll be looking at first Samuel in just a moment pick up the book to spend some time. Do it today, do it again tomorrow. do it again the next day. Just keep on. Um, if if it is, on the other hand, maybe something that you never did get going or you intended to, and you just didn't didn't pull it off. Well, it's still not too late. Um, we do tend to make a big deal about New Year's resolutions, you know, rightly or wrongly, we could debate about that, I suppose. but but again, the Bible reading isn't the kind of thing where you just make a resolution about it and move on. No, no, no. I, I kind of would equate it to, your life's blood. It's its like spiritual oxygen. If for some reason you weren't breathing for the last 30 or 60 seconds, let's just say maybe you were holding your breath underwater. Well, I, I would imagine that you wouldn't be saying, well, I've gone this long without breathing. I don't need to start again. Of course not. thats That would be foolish. And I think the same thing goes when you're talking about the Scripture. When you're talking about reading the Scripture, even if you haven't done it for a long time, I mean, you may say, well, I haven't picked up the Bible in years. Well, you know, I'm sorry that that's been the case, but that doesn't mean you never pick it up. That means you go ahead and pick up where you are, get back into it. And If you slip again and it's another week or two weeks before you pick it up, go ahead and pick it up again and get back in it. And as I said, we're, we're together now, you're listening to me now, so maybe use this as a moment to, to get back in the word. Uh, we're gonna be going over 1 Samuel. In fact, um, the passage I'm gonna be talking about is chapter one, verse one, and it'll go all the way to chapter two, verse 10. And uh, I'm not going to read that aloud for this for the sake of time. I'm not going to take that. I'm going to assume that if you're interested in this study, you're probably picking up the Word of God yourself. I'm really making some commentary around that, trying to help you see some things that maybe you can dig in a little deeper on. So maybe if you haven't read that lately or already read it, for preparation for this podcast, why don't you just pause me for a second, put me off to the side and uh, pick up your Bible and read chapter one of First Samuel, read all the way to chapter two and verse 10, and then you can get in there. So, so we'll just get that together and I'll be here when you get back. That's no problem. You can take a pause and come right back to me. Bible study. Now we're going to look at uh, 1 Samuel, as I mentioned, chapter 1, verse 1, going all the way to chapter 2 and verse 10. By way of introduction, it uh, reminds me of a, a story or a, a situation that happened to our family a few years ago. Every summer, we, as a family, we will go as a family trip. Uh, go to the North Carolina coast. Um, sometimes we'll go to Topsail. Sometimes we'll uh, we go to we go to Emerald Isle. Different places like that. Um, there were a few years there. We went to the Outer Banks pretty regularly. And a couple of years ago, we decided to go back and went to a, a place right way out in the middle, it feels like to me in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. I uh, guess you go way out there to Frisco, North Carolina, which is uh, real near the, the lighthouse, the Hatteras Lighthouse, that a lot of people know. But um, It's way out there on the Outer Banks. we were having a really good time, enjoyed our trip there, family time together and all that. But. I think it was somewhere in the middle of the week. I think it was a Wednesday when this happened. We were out on the beach. We were you know, sitting under the tent, um, pretty pretty pale skinned guy. So I've got to watch out for the sun exposure. But we're sitting out there and reading a book. Vanessa's uh, taking care of a few things. We're sitting there on the beach. And um, I looked up, when I looked up from my book, um, Vanessa says to me, she says, you have to go help him because my second oldest son, Eli was out, he was out quite a ways out there and he was just bouncing and waving his arms and clearly struggling, clearly not having a good time like the rest of us. But when she said, you have to go help him, I have never felt, and I really, I can't imagine, I can't think of a time since then that I felt as useless and hopeless and helpless as I did at that moment. Uh, We since learned that he was being pulled out by a rip current. And uh, if you know anything about those uh, the, around the, the coastal areas, you know they can be deadly. Um, he had been fighting this rip current for some time. We didn't know that until again after the fact, but he had been fighting it. He's pretty fit, kind of strong fella. and uh, but he was starting to feel weak. He' started to feel panic because that he just kept struggling against it and couldn't get get a grip on it. And had he not been as strong and as fit as he is, Uh, it's almost certain he would have been dead. And you've probably read news stories of many people succumbing to these kinds of things. But he'd been hollering for help and no one could hear him over the crash of the waves. And if you've ever been to the beach, you know how this is where you're there. I mean, it's it's actually very loud. I mean, I know it's peaceful in its way, but it's it's there's this sort of white noise, and you really can't hear much that's, you know, either to the right or the left, or even definitely out on the on the water. So no one really could hear him. Vanessa, my wife, she's there a little more observant than I was. I was kind of had my nose in the book, but uh, her and a few other folks were, had seen him and they were starting to have a conversation about how we're going to get out there to him. And, and I was, as soon as I was tuned into it, I was ready to jump into it. Now, understand I'm a completely incompetent swimmer. I mean, I, if I had to save my life, I I might be able to, if the circumstances were right and there wasn't a rip current, Uh, but, but I'm, I'm ready, ready to go help him, even though I couldn't. But the good news was there was a there was a very able-bodied man, and I say able-bodied because it was clear he had helped some other people earlier in the week after a conversation with him, and and I think he may have helped others later in the week. But solid swimmer, you know, physically in, in good condition, and and just ready to do this. But he's someone who was ready to go and, and help uh, Eli. And he said, "I'm going to go out there and get him." And I was so grateful for that. Of course, he went out there. Eli was brought in. Eli lived to see another day, a little spooked about the ocean, of course, for a little time, but um, he, he, he survived and, and, and thrived after that. But the, the waves of the Atlantic Ocean were strong. They were so strong, stronger than he was, that they just about did him in. But he had a rescuer, this man that comes along, and this rescuer was stronger and closer and, and on his way, available to him. And that's exactly what's happening in these, these first couple of chapters of First Samuel, chapter one, and then the first part of chapter two, except instead of ocean waves, you're seeing the sin and lawlessness of a family and of a nation that's overwhelming. The, the, the focus is on this one particular woman. So it's overwhelming this one specific woman named Hannah, pulling her in deep, threatening to take her joy, threatening to take her life from her. But as you're going to see in 1 Samuel, there is one who exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. This one is available to save. This one is the one who returns the things that have been taken, the things that have been stolen, the things that have been damaged, and he returns blessings to those that are down and out, people like Hannah. There is one who's available. And there's only one who's able to give what this dear woman wants. But as you get into this chapter one, I mean, the damage of sin is pretty deep. If you go back, I think I told you in the last episode in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, that's the last verse um, that goes right before, chronologically, right before 1 Samuel chapter one, verse one, the very last verse in the history of Israel before 1 Samuel you can see that this is the era of doing what's right in your own eyes. So it's not hard to see parallels um, to our own time in 2021 as you read this study. Uh, People that are doing what they want to do. In fact, I just recently had a a conversation with my son about this very thing. And you can complain about what's going on around us. But ultimately, what you're seeing is a reflection of the hearts of people. They are doing literally what they want to do. So, as you get into 1 Samuel chapter 1, you meet someone. The first person you meet is a man named Elkanah. Uh, now, El- Elkanah comes from a good family, from a good part of Israel. Uh, in verse 3, you can tell he's religiously observant. His family, in this fact, that's sort of the center point or centerpiece of this. Uh, uh, story is his family going to Shiloh for their annual visit. They do their annual sacrifices there. So he's, you know, a very religious man. Um, by all accounts, his family would have been one if, you know, if you lived near them, you would have said, hey, kids, y'all can go play with uh, with Elkanah's boys, because uh, his family would have been one of the good families. It's clear he's got a little bit of money in his pocket. I uh, don't know if he was overly wealthy, but he's at least middle class, upper middle class. You know, kind of in a in a good spot. He's got a little bit of money, and the reason that I'm assuming that is because he's got two wives. And all jokes aside, as much as there's a lot of jokes there, you could you could have, the, the cost of supporting multiple wives meant that. A polygamous family would not be something that would be synonymous with a poor family. You cannot be polygamous and poor. It would be very difficult anyway. So the fact is, he probably had some some wealth in his family. By all accounts, I think if you read the first half of chapter 1, you're going to come away with this sense that Elkanah is a, a solid, decent, upstanding guy in the context of Israel. And If you look at verse eight, where he is comforting Hannah, Hannah is upset because she doesn't have a child, and he's trying to comfort her. And you can see, I think, you know, with, with some of the flaws that he's got, that this is a guy's got heart. I mean, he really cares for his family. Then in verse two, you meet his family, specifically his two wives. And, and you think about this, this situation, whatever your modern mind might think of this situation, What I need you to understand is when you're looking at this family, what you're looking at is what would have been considered a normal, um, moderately wealthy, fairly religious, um, good family in ancient Israel in the final days of the judge era, the judges era. Uh, If you want to kind of give you something to hang on to, to bring it into 2021, think middle class, Bible belt. Baptist family. I mean, these are people that go to church every Sunday, and you know their kids are kind of buttoned up, and that, that sort of, Just think that kind of a family. Yet, so so that's that's. I want you to think about it that way from a from a human modern human perspective. But when you filter it through the lens of God's word, God's law, the character of God, who God is, as we see Him in Scripture, you cannot help but notice the rampant sin. already mentioned polygamy and this was this has never been god's plan no matter how many characters in scripture uh practice polygamy even good men in scripture practice polygamy that that act has never been god's plan i mean this you've heard people talk about and i would agree with it going to genesis chapter one and two one man one woman for life that is god's plan for marriage multiple wives even multiple husbands any other concoction you can come up with is not God's plan, yet it's practiced as normal in this setting. You see, of course, that that kind of uh, marriage relationship produces another sin, favoritism. In verse 5, you see Elkanah is seen as somebody who likes one wife over the other. He prefers Hannah. He likes her better. Uh, It seems to indicate she was a more attractive person. Maybe personality was just more uh, enjoyable, whatever the the reasons were, but he, he tended to like her better. But that's favoritism that he's treating one person better than another. And of course, that generates jealousy. Uh, You can see that in verse 6, where there's this this fighting between these two women. And even there's another thing that this this prompts in Elkanah, he has sort of a prideful attitude. Even as he's trying to console Hannah in verse 8, he exudes this pride, you know, haven't I done everything I need to for you? And then don't miss. There's another another aspect of this that there's a whole layer of hypocrisy and lawlessness in this whole setting. I've just mentioned sins in the family, but you go into the now into Shiloh where the priest Eli is, and Eli is getting upset with Hannah. Go to verse 13 because he thinks she's acting. She acts like she's drunk, so he's concerned. Here's a woman acting drunk. Uh, this family who has traveled to Shiloh to participate in what is essentially a sacrificial meal. That's It's part of their religious practice that was prescribed in the law of Moses. They're going there and here's Elach getting upset because this woman after that meal acts like she's drunk. And this is problematic on a couple of levels. Uh, The lawlessness that it suggests is it, it seems like it might have been a pretty typical thing for Eli to see this after um, every one of these meals. Was this Could it have been a normal thing for him to see this? He's like, oh, here's another one I have to deal with. Um, but there's also uh, hypocrisy. Here he is being fastidious about this woman. Why does she dare come into the tabernacle uh, as a drunk woman? Yet he is so flippant about his own children. If you go to chapter two in verse 22, 23, 24, 25, that area there, you're gonna see that his own sons are treating the tabernacle just like they would going to a to singles night at the bar, picking up these women and and laying with them, the scripture says. And he's not even addressing them. This is in his own house, doing things that are unmentionable in the house of God. Yet he's really kind of, and he's not doing anything for them, but yet this woman comes in and he wants to get on her case. So there's sin and sin abounding here. And that's just in this passage. If you go back and reread Judges, you're going to find that this sin isn't just affecting this family. You go to chapter two of First Samuel, you're going to see, like I just mentioned, the high priest families riddled with sin. You're going to continue to see throughout this book how the impact of this sin hits an individual, hits families, hits communities, and even hits the entire nation. Like I said, sin is abounding. This is the point. And yes, thank you, Apostle Paul, in Romans 5, verse 20, grace does much more abound where sin abounds. But the reason I need God's grace to abound so much is because sin's damage continues to abound. One sin abounds and there's more sin that comes, but then the damage just continues to pile on. Just in chapter one of 1 Samuel, you'll see the damage is pretty deep, just with a couple of things. And again, if we had more time, you could probably pull out even more. But you've got a woman who's childless. You've got a Hannah. She's unable to have children. You see this in verse two, I think in verse five it references this as well. And her barrenness the fact that she can't have children is not necessarily because of some personal sin that she's done, but don't miss that God created a woman's body to be able to bear children, uh, if she so chooses. But the broken world, sin-cursed world that we live in has caused bodies of all you know, men and women to sometimes not operate as they should you can see this in things like birth defects, you see this in cancer diagnosis, you see this in chronic illness, and you definitely see it here with Hannah and her inability to have children. So sin has this sort of individual impact and it hurts her. And then what flows from that is jealousy and depression and unhappiness and serious grief. As a result of this sin within this family, As a result of the impact of sin in the world, the childlessness, plus the sin within the family, all the things I was telling you about before, there is this cluster of damage. Uh, You can look in verse seven, you can look in verse 10, you can see this that one thing leads to the next thing, leads to the next thing. And ultimately, you have at the center of this passage a woman who just about can't go on. I mean, you really look at her heart. Yes, she's not just sort of sad and mopey about this, I mean, she's desperate. And arguably, this is not her fault. There's some. There's something beyond her control, yet the damage is very deep and very personal for her. So, sin begets more sin, which begets more damage. Everything in the world turns ugly due to the damage of sin. The world is so fallen, it's fallen all the way down to the molecular level. It is that destroyed. So, yes, sin's damage is deep, but there is a savior from the sin that is very, very much available. So there's hope that's in this passage as well. The hope is actually reflected in part, and I think on purpose by the the author of scripture here, uh, which we know the ultimate author is God. I think that that hope is purposely reflected in the annual sacrifice that this family is participating in. You see those sacrifices in verse three through seven, and then in the second sacrifice, they come back to later on in the chapter. But this sacrifice is a celebration that reflects a greater hope because it's an offering that is detailed to Israel at a time when they had no idea how to connect to a righteous and holy God. You can read the tales of this offering, this peace offering over in Leviticus chapter 7. And and Leviticus is really this interesting book. At some point, I will likely do that if we're able to continue to do these podcasts, likely do that study with you at some point. But Leviticus is an interesting book in that it's part of this long message from God to the Israelite nation. And it starts, if you go to the end of Exodus, beginning of Leviticus, You've got Moses, who's essentially locked out of the tabernacle. He's been, he's been told how to build the tabernacle. He does it, but he can't get in because he's not holy enough. So, Leviticus is recounting how a sinful man can be made right and able to boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Amazing picture there, and here we have just one of those sacrifices. There are are about seven of those major sacrifices, but this peace offering is pulled out and shown here as a celebratory gathering, and that's the intent. You're supposed to celebrate, and you're sharing a meal together that has been sacrificed to God, and you're praising God for His grace but in the middle of all that, you've got this woman who's grieving. In verse 10, it says that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. So there, there are a lot of ways that people deal with grief. And I and I know this myself because I've gone through some grief uh, fairly recently. And, and, and I know that there's this process that is fairly popularized. It's called the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. And you may not know it by that name, but you may know the types of things they're talking about. It says, you start off with denial, you go through anger, a stage of bargaining, then you're depressed, and then you finally accept it. And, and, and I know, like I said, from my own experience, that's pretty typical. That's a normal process. That's why it is such a popular thing. I don't think it's necessarily prescriptive. It's just descriptive of how people tend to go through grief. And, and that's and that's fair. And I, and I agree that that is at least my experience is what it's been but it's not really the way to get the help you need. It's the way you go through it. It's the way you manage through it. It's what you do because we're human, but it's not the answer to the problem. And this is something that Hannah clearly understands or at least seems to understand. So here's her family here at Shiloh and they're praising God for his provision. She, at that same time, is crying out to God for help in her specific situation. In fact, in verse 11, the language she uses there is very interesting. If you compare verse eleven of chapter one to Exodus chapter three and verse seven, in chapter three and verse Exodus three verse seven, God is saying to Moses at that time, He says that He has seen Israel's affliction under slavery, and He's going to be stepping into that to help. Now you have in in um, in verse uh, verse eleven, you've got Hannah asking God to look on her affliction, and to step in and help. She's essentially saying, hey, God, if you can intervene for national Israel, surely my little personal problem is not going to be an issue for you. And and what she's doing in this chapter, and you, you see this as you read that, that she's doing what people who have needed and who have gotten help from God throughout all the ages have always done. She's humbling herself before God. And you know what happens when she does that? If you read chapter one, you saw it. She humbles herself and then she goes home. And what happens? God helps her. He gives her a son. He gives her a son. God literally exalts this humble, broken woman. He answers her prayer and he gives her the one thing she's been asking for, which is, of course, a son. And then when she comes back the next year, because that family every year would come back to worship God, if it comes back the next year and you see this in um, verses 24, 25, 26, 27, that area there, right towards the end of chapter one, she acknowledges that this little boy has come about as a result of her asking God and God, of course, responding uh, in love. A, a sub point here to make, as we're thinking through this is, that we can actually approach God boldly with our needs. I want you to hear this, because there's this woman, Hannah, in the Old Testament. She's a barren wife in a culture that valued childbearing. She is a woman in a culture that, generally speaking, saw women as secondary, second class. She is a person in the Old Testament, the ancient world, who did not have the benefit that you and I have of the full revelation of God, the Old and New Testaments, so we see that full picture of Jesus unfolded. Yet she still boldly—now, don't don't confuse the word bold with arrogant. She's not being arrogant, but she's confident. She is boldly approaching God with her needs, fully expecting that if she will humble herself, He'll hear her and He will help her. That's what the Bible's talking about when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So how much more should you and I, with all the promises that have been revealed to us and all the the the, the, the cross and the resurrection and all that been given to us, should we then boldly, with humility to be fair, but with that confidence to go to God with our, for our help? Uh, the writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he had consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, the cure for the damage of sin is found by humbling ourselves before a holy, mighty God. And we can do so boldly with full assurance that he's able, he's willing, and he will respond by exalting us in due time in his way for his purpose. This is this is exactly the way God works all the time. In fact, that's the point of Hannah's song in the first 10 chapters, excuse me, 10 verses of chapter 2. You could break her song down in three points, and that that song itself takes really uh, deserves a longer, larger uh, discussion. But for the sake of our time, let me just briefly give you the three parts of it. The first section, which is the first three verses, she's talking about how great God is. She's talking about how he's the God who turned her life around. She's one who was overwhelmed, depressed because of the impact of sin on her life. But in verse two, she's rejoicing and triumphant. She goes on to talk about God as. Yahweh uh, in your if in most of your translations they're going to have the word Lord L O R D and it'll be all small cap letters. Uh, that's what she's using, and, and I think in this this song she uses that name of God, uh, that 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 covenant name of God, that one who is the self-existing one. She uses that name nine times, saying He doesn't need anybody, but we need Him, and He has made Himself available to us. Just talking about how great God is. The second section, which is verses four through eight, she is talking about how God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. And she uses these, these interesting kind of parallels uh, to discuss it. Uh, in verse four, you see her talking about how the mighty, the strong, are broken, but the clumsy, the, the guy who can't even stand up straight, he's strengthened. In verse five, you've got the people who are full, who don't need anything, they're sent out begging. But the people who are hungry, they're fed and they're satisfied. In that same verse, you've got this woman who is barren. Of course, she's I think imagining herself in this in this song. Uh, but there's this barren woman, and she has seven children. A woman who is goes from no children, she now has seven children. And then there's this woman who has a house full. And in that in that culture, a house full of children would have been just the uh, just the apex of happiness. Yet you see, she ends up weak and broken. And in verses 6, 7, and 8, you see that God, this is, it is God who kills and resurrects. It is God who gives wealth and takes it. He gives honor and takes it. So she's just emphasizing that it's the God who's the one who exalts and who humbles. And in that third section, the last two verses, verses 9 and 10, she talks about how this isn't just something that God does for this one poor woman in Ephraim. And I think that's I think that's one of the things we might miss in a story like this is somehow we might get this idea that this is just what happened to Hannah. No, a lot of what scripture and we've got to be careful in our interpretation here, but I do believe in this case, this absolutely is ca- the, the case where what happens here is actually typical. This is the kind of God that God is. In verse nine, he says he does, she says he does this sort of thing. For his saints, his chosen people, and that anybody that wants to go against him might as well hang it up because this is the kind of God he is. Verse verse 10, anybody who goes against Yahweh just better be prepared to be broken, to be judged, because he's going to give strength and blessing to his people. So, she is saying, listen, God looks on my affliction. He remembers me in my time of need. He visits me in my time of sorrow. And this isn't just something God does occasionally or when the circumstances are right. This is fundamental to his character. This is who he is. This is what God does. He exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. And we're gonna see this play out time and again in these next few chapters of our study. So I've got a a good list of questions that I want to be able to address in the coming weeks on the podcast, but uh, I'm going to spend the rest of this week's show talking about an answer to a question that I imagine nobody's even asking. So you say, well, what in the world? Why are you wanting to talk about that? Well, it's because I want to talk about a few things here I think it may be helpful to you. So if I wanted to pose this as a question, it would be what resources can I use to study the book of 1 Samuel just a little bit better? again, ultimately, I want to pull that out through through this study, but I think I wanted to stop here and just address this for just a minute. And in the spirit of answering how can I what resources can I use to study the the Word of God or a particular book a little bit better? in the spirit of answering that from a biblical perspective, uh, let me say that a good and complete copy of the scripture and an Ill, and, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit are really all you need to study the scripture i'm telling you if you've got a bible i happen to have one here that's open to first samuel but if you've got a copy of god's word and and these this bible is readily available by the way if you don't have a copy and you want a copy please contact me reach out in any way and i will do my best to get a copy in your hands but this this word of god is available it's so available it's actually um it's almost it's almost a shame that more people don't have access to it than they do, but because it, it's so available. But if you've got that and you've got the Holy Spirit, who is the great teacher, with you, you have what you need. That, that's all you need, and, and, and don't ever think that those things are not enough. And, and definitely don't wait to study the Scripture until you get some, other, you know, some teacher to walk alongside of you or some books or resources. No, no, no. It, it, in fact, personally, my own experience. It was an open Bible and a submitted heart that God used to show me his call on my life to be a preacher and a local church pastor. I remember spending hours upon hours painstakingly working my way through first Corinthians really with only just reading the words and talking to the Lord about them, and just reading them and just trying to understand what the Bible actually said and apply it to my life instead of, because I'd grown up in church most of my life and all my life and what I had so much depended on at that moment had been what someone else told me the Bible says, but I needed to open the book, and understand it for myself. The good news is, it matched a lot of what I've been taught, but I needed to hear it from God directly. But God's Word is absolutely accurate and reliable. But this is important. It's also sufficient. It's all that we need. I need to say right here, period. That's it. And you say, well, Matthew, I, I got you got stuff you want to say. Absolutely. I do got stuff I want to say. I do have stuff I want to say, but but I need you to hear that before I go any further. You only need the word of God and the Holy Spirit. You have those things, you have what you need to study the scripture. Now, like I said, you may want to bring some additional resources into your study. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I want to also got a further caution you, you have to be careful not to rely on them first. Remember. The Bible is God communicating to you. It's literally the Word of God. So take the time to read it, listen to it, hear it, think about it. If you need to memorize it, whatever, let the Word of God speak to you. And like anything else that's precious and deep and wonderful, just like the Bible, it's deep, precious, and wonderful, there have been a lot of people who've thought deeply about it. And there is nothing in the world wrong with letting them help you in your efforts. No, there's no reason you can't go and sit alongside of some of the the great writers of our our day-to-day, the great thinkers of of generations before and let them help you. And one particular Bible study tool that I appreciate is something called the Bible commentary. Now, um, there's a lot of them out there and you might use these already on a regular basis, if so, Please, I'm just, I'm really trying to help those. One of my intents here is to help anybody who wants to go deeper but doesn't know how. So I'm trying to give you something to go deeper. So if you already are set on your commentaries, you know, hey, take this or leave it. But these are some helpful hints, I hope, for some of you that uh, maybe aren't as uh, uh, familiar with these. But there's a lot of different commentaries out there. And you might have a preferred author. Um, I have a bunch of books by, or commentaries by a man named John Phillips. Uh, they're fine commentaries, I don't have anything wrong with them, uh, it's not one of my preferred types of commentaries, but just for some reason I've got a bunch of those, and I'll use them from time to time. And some people, you know, that, that you may have this sort of an author that you look after. You might prefer a different type, of, you know, sort of a way of accessing it. Uh, maybe you use an online tool like blueletterbible.com, something I've used uh, quite a bit in the past, and there's some great commentaries that are associated with that. Or maybe you're familiar with something like the Matthew Henry commentary. It's, it's pretty easily available. It's a couple hundred years old at this point, but very easily available. Good, good information there. But, but some of you, like I said, may not be that familiar with the commentary or really never use them. Um, And I'll tell you, I personally like to use a commentary because it can add a uh, just sort of another dimension to my study it gives me a little deeper understanding of things like the context and the original languages and some of the various interpretations of the church throughout history and, and you know some some issues there really are two or three different ways to take it. It doesn't really change what the bible says um, so it's, it's just good to kind of think through those things. And, and if you're not used to using commentaries, but you're thinking about trying it, you know, I, I want to at least give you this little piece of information that there's there are a couple of different types. Be prepared for that, um, at least the way I think about them. There may be some other categorizations out there you could read about. But this is how I tend to categorize most commentaries. The first category, and, and I can imagine this is almost like a, like a spectrum on one end versus the other end. On one end of the spectrum, you'll have what I'm going to call devotional uh, commentaries. Uh, These can come in a lot of different packages. Um, I tend to think about uh, Warren Wiersbe's B series. And you may know uh, some of those individual books, Be Rich, where he talks about Ephesians, Be Free from Galatians, Be Loyal from Matthew. I um, I have his whole B series in a two volume set. This is volume one, Matthew through Galatians. I have them in a two volume set and I'm able to reference these. Um, uh, what what's, what's really good about these is they're, they're really, he's packaged up this information about each of these, each of these books and very accessible, very easy to access. A lot of times these are sermons. Um, these devotional commentaries are sermons that the man preached in this case, Warren Wiersbe. This is um, sermons or some writings that he done, had done. Uh, just uh, practical application of the books that he's referring to. Uh, Another one in this vein was uh, Henry Ironside's, and it's just an old book here that I have. Someone gave that to me. I love Henry Ironside's commentary, but ultimately it's just a sermon series that he preached. While he was preaching it, someone pinned down the words as he was preaching them, and they've encapsulated as a book. But you're gonna find a lot of focus on application. how to apply the information in the scripture. Again, much like you might think of a sermon doing or a Sunday school lesson lesson, trying to apply it to your life. There's gonna be some information about things like context and the language and the meaning, but that's really not the emphasis because the emphasis is gonna be if there is any discussion of that to pull it out and to apply it. Um, These are often going to read a lot like a regular book, meaning something that you would start in page one and go down to the to the final, uh, final page of it, Uh, and you'll probably consume it that way. Um, And that those are often just they're they're wonderful books in that way. Um, You could still use it as a reference tool, but often again, you just, you know, read it from from cover to cover. But those are devotional commentaries. Um, emphasis is, is um, application. On the other end of the spectrum, what I'll, I'm gonna call these technical commentaries or academic commentaries. Varying degrees of technicality, of course, um, but most of these are very academic studies of specific books of the Bible. Um, if you use a, um, you might you might be able to get to some of these, some of this information through, you know, some, some really kind of thick uh, volumes of books. Uh, but it goes pretty deep into the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, some textual criticism might be addressed. I own a couple of books in this category, and I do refer to them on occasion. Um, in fact, I'm going to reference one of them here in just a moment about First Samuel. But, um, you know, to be honest with you, they're, they're kind of tough for me to use. And again, that's just because of my, my, my knowledge. Uh, some of you that are listening may either be or will be soon going a little deeper on this. And, you know, you're... You may help me in some ways on this, but um, but they, they're really gonna be great for reference material as you're looking at a passage of scripture, going back to these and referring to and kind of digging underneath the, 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 the details of a particularly tough passage. So that's kind of the technical commentaries. And then somewhere kind of in the middle of that is pastoral commentaries. And this is my term for them because I call them pastoral in that they are what I think they're great for a pastor to use in the study of the scripture as he's preparing sermons. And this is what I would tend to use my commentaries for. But this is really kind of a wide range of commentaries that are intended to provide a thorough biblical theology, a biblical theology of specific books. Now, biblical theology is just that idea of pulling out the big themes of a book giving details about the context, about the issues with the language, things like that. But just looking at that book in the context of the whole book of the Bible, books of the Bible, um, and and trying to understand it gives you a better sense of things like the original audience, uh, the writer, the purpose of the book, things like that. Um, I can get, I, I like to get, excuse me, I like to get at least one of these commentaries, maybe a couple if I can afford it, but at least one on any book of the Bible that I'm preaching through. Uh, some are good for reading through. I, I have one on Leviticus that I am actually uh, using as I'm studying the book of Le- Leviticus that is actually set up as it's, it's actually pretty easy to go from, from page one all the way through. It's intended to be read that way. Um, but, but in fact, uh, you know, some of them I will um, use more as a ready reference. In fact, I would actually recommend that most, most commentaries be used as reference material, meaning Go to the passage, read the passage, digest the text yourself, come to your own conclusions about it, try to understand it the best you can on your own, let the Holy Spirit guide your your study, of course. And then go and consult one of these good pastoral commentaries to just maybe check out some question mark areas. Maybe there was some area that you wanted to, like, this sounds like it could be something, but I don't know. Or maybe you have a question about a challenging idea in the passage and that the commentaries can help you. So now that I've explained the philosophy of commentaries, I do want to give you some specific recommendations on commentaries for First Samuel, particularly some resources that I'm going to be using in this study. That's why I'm referring you to them because that's what I'm using right now. There are others, I'm not suggesting by any means these are the only ones you could ever use. There are many other resources and you should feel you should use the ones that you feel comfortable with. But, um, and I'll have a link to each one of these resources that I've mentioned and will be mentioning um, in the show notes. And that's essentially a blog on my website at njtilly.wordpress.com. But let me offer you a quick look at each before we close the show today. Uh, First, I've got three here. The first thing is actually a commentary recommendation tool. So this is kind of a free resource, but it's a resource of resources, if you will. So, just about any time that I'm trying to figure out okay, what commentary is going to be the best one to, to use for a particular book. And, like I said, there, there are so many out there. So, you don't want to go wasting your money on a bunch of different things. So, I, I'll i check out this website. It's called challies.com, and that's spelled C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. And if you go to challies.com, you do a search on his website, it's Tim Challies. If you go to his website and go search for best commentary on, and then Book whatever the book is that you're looking for, you're going to get a very helpful blog post from him describing at least three to five commentaries, giving you kind of a a ranking and and some reasons why this one's better and all that. It's really helpful. I really appreciate Tim Challey's ministry. He's, especially in this this front and of course other areas as well, but in this front, he's going to uh, kind of keep you looking down the conservative, biblically faithful path there are certainly other perspectives out there. Um, and if that's a uh, resources that you would like to, to explore, I'm sure there's somebody who's curated good lists on that. I'm just not as familiar with them. But that's a, a commentary recommendation tool. Number two, there's a very helpful pastoral commentary that actually kind of bridges the gap or sort of straddles the fence between pastoral and devotional, but leans a little pastoral. Um, And and when you go to Tim Challies' site, you look up his recommendation for 1st and 2nd Samuel. You'll actually see this one listed so you can kind of see where I'm getting my idea from. But it's a a book, a little book, in fact, Um, and this is just for 1 Samuel. Uh, There is an edition for 2 Samuel, but it's by a a pastor preacher, Dale Ralph Davis is his name. And it's uh, 1 Samuel, Looking on the Heart is the title of it. And it's a part of a larger series as often these are. But let me tell you, this is hands down the best commentary I've ever read on any book, not to mention how good it is, of course, just for 1 Samuel. Um, I actually gave a copy of this book uh, to my brother-in-law, uh, Wesley Byerly, um, to help him. He's been preaching uh, for some time on First Samuel to help him in his study um, as he's preaching in his church in Reedsville, North Carolina. And, of course, I've used it on my own as I'm studying as well and preached out of First Samuel and, of course, as I'm talking to you about it now. But but Davis has just such a good style. Um, he's enjoyable to read. He packs a lot of great information in each chapter. Very, very practical, which is why I say it kind of skews a little bit devotional, but he really does apply the truths in a in a very helpful, up-to-date, while being very timeless, of course, but an up-to-date manner in each chapter. Um, again, great, great commentary, and I would very highly recommend you uh, go check it out. Now, I mentioned I also like to uh, go a little bit deeper, get a little deeper commentary, more academic. Um, so for my deeper, more academic commentary, um, there, this, is, there, this is not one of the newer ones. There are actually a lot of newer ones out there, some really good scholarship that's available. But uh, one that I found um, is this one here. It's 1 uh, Samuel. It's part of the, um, uh, the Anchor Bible uh, series. Uh, the, the author here is uh, P. Kyle McCarter. Junior. Um, as you kind of tell, the, the best cover on this one's a little beat up, but this is one that I that I would highly recommend. I found this commentary on another commentary recommendation site, uh, bestcommentaries.com. And this commentary is consistently ranked among you know top two through four of all first Samuel or all Samuel commentaries, because this, although this is first Samuel, but it's all Samuel commentaries, you'll see that there. Do be warned, if you do pick up a copy of this, um, again, I enjoy it, I use it, I do reference it, it's very good, but be warned, it's very, very detailed. McCarter um, has made a lot of effort to really get underneath and understand the underlying Hebrew of 1 First, First Samuel, so much so that he's actually gone to the trouble to provide what he sees as a clearer translation, uh, English translation, of 1 Samuel based on his understanding of the underlying Hebrew. So you're going to get a very almost phrase by phrase, word by word analysis of every verse in the book. Uh, You're going to get a very good explanation of the history um, as well as some of the controversies underlying even the manuscripts, like how the, the actual initial books came book came together. Um, uh, uh, he's gonna have a lot of good inf- information in there. And ultimately, I'm selling this one a little bit short uh, because McCarter is just so good and so in-depth. He's got more in this book than I'll ever be able to fully appreciate, just to be honest with you. Uh, so if you want a really deep academic commentary, I would recommend highly that you check this one. out. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. Uh, Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you like to listen to podcasts. You can also watch this on this video on YouTube or on Facebook. Just search Seeking Christ in the Scriptures on those platforms and you'll go to the, the page that we have there and you can see the latest video. Now, if you found the show helpful or interesting in any way, would you mind sharing it with somebody that you know? Uh, maybe you're seeing a post on Facebook or on Twitter or something like that. Would you mind liking it or, or sharing that with other people? Um, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, maybe you can rate the show on, on uh, iTunes. All of these things will go a long way to help us and help us get the word out about the show. But thank you so much for joining us. I hope you all have a great week and tune in next week for a new episode of Seeking Christ in the Scriptures.